good day and welcome to the Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting exclusively here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. We are continuing to be part of a international network and consortium of over 400 newsrooms collectively called Covering Climate Now. And there are a couple of leaders in this effort. One of them is The Guardian, published in the UK. And recently, they have had a couple of amazingly alarming infographic type of articles that I have been recommending to people. Um, Tuesday, October 12th, there was an amazing visualization using scientific research what the sea level rise would do to famous American sites. You could see all of these locations, what they look like today, how much underwater they would be at 1.5 degree warming, and then how much underwater they would be at three degree warming. And it is amazing to see today, they have also published another interesting infographic with the article titled, The Climate Disaster Is Here. I'm going to read from The Climate Disaster Is Here, Unfortunately, I won't be able to show you the visual charts, but if you do go to the guardian.com US version into their climate change coverage, you will be able to see these uh, two amazing articles this week and the visuals they present. After we read this larger article on the climate disaster and the need to take action, we're going to break down the rest of the show with a lot of headlines, a fire hose of information. We're going to talk about the messages we've seen so far to date, and that is that we shouldn't perhaps expect politicians and governments to act, but businesses and people are acting, especially the youth. So we'll have a section on governments who appear to be the last responders. We're gonna have a section on business and individual efforts, and then we're going to end the show with a lot of information about the youth. So let's begin. This article in today's Guardian is called The Climate Disaster is Here. Earth is already becoming unlivable. Will governments act to stop this disaster from getting worse? The enormous, unprecedented pain and turmoil caused by the climate crisis is often discussed alongside what can seem like surprisingly small temperature increases. 1.5 degree or 2 degree Celsius hotter than it was in the era just before the car replaced the horse and cart. Of course, you can roughly double that for Fahrenheit. We're talking about three to four degrees Fahrenheit. These temperature thresholds will again be the focus of upcoming UN climate talks at the summit in Scotland as countries variously either dawdle or scramble to avert climate catastrophe. But the single digit numbers obscure huge ramifications at stake According to Catherine Hayhoe, a climate scientist at Texas Tech University, quote, we have built a civilization based on a world that doesn't exist anymore. The world is already heated up by around 1.2 degrees Celsius already on average. We're about to break through 1.25. Since the pre-industrial era is how this is being measured. This is pushing humanity beyond almost all historical boundaries cranking up the temperature of the entire globe this much within little more than a century is, in fact, extraordinary. With the oceans alone, are you ready for this? 
The oceans alone on our planet are absorbing the heat equivalent of five Hiroshima atomic bombs dropping into the water every second. I'm going to say that again. The oceans currently alone are absorbing the heat equivalent of five atomic bombs being dropped into the water every single second. I just spent 15 seconds reading this. So what they did in this article, if you were able to visit it and see the visualizations, they ran through some different scenarios. And what I found fascinating was that they had three different scenarios, two of which were unlikely, and one was in the middle. The worst case scenario, they called an unlikely pathway where emissions are not mitigated. Essentially, nothing is done, business as usual, we continue. Worst case scenario, which they say is unlikely. Then they also have the best case scenario, where emissions start declining now, which would allow global temperatures to peak at 1.8. We would go beyond 1.5, but we would be able to stop just shy of two and maybe even bring it back down. That's if we start declining now. They also called that an unlikely pathway. It is just as unlikely that we won't do anything that we will actually do something now. And instead, what they call the intermediate pathway is a pathway where emissions finally start to decline around 2040. Another two decades is how long they're thinking it might take for things to actually start to go down. So they say that until now, human civilization has operated within a narrow, stable band of temperature. Through the burning of fossil fuels, we have now unmoored ourselves from our past as if we have transplanted ourselves onto another planet. The last time it was hotter than now was at least 125,000 years ago. While the atmosphere has more heat-trapping carbon dioxide in it than at any time in the past 2 million years, perhaps more. Modern civilization is less than 10,000 years old. Well, since 1970, the Earth's temperature has raced upwards faster than in any comparable period, the last 50 years. The oceans have heated up at a rate not seen in at least 11,000 years. Said, hey ho, the climate scientist at Texas Tech, we are conducting an unprecedented experiment with our entire planet. The temperature has only moved a few tenths of a degree for us until now. A few tenths of a degree. Now we're headed towards two. Now we are hitting a curve we've never seen before. No one is entirely sure how this horrifying experiment will end, but humans like defined goals. And so, in the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, nearly 200 countries agreed to limit the global temperature rise to, quote, well below 2 degrees Celsius, with an aspirational goal to keep it to 1.5. The latter target of 1.5 actually had to be fought for by small, poor nations, aware that an, exi- that an existential threat of unlivable heat waves, floods, and drought hinged upon this ostensibly small increment. 
The difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is a death sentence for the Maldives, said Ibrahim Mohamed Soli, president of the country, to world leaders at the United Nations this September. Well, there is no huge chasm after going past 1.5 degree, of course. We are currently tumbling down a painful, worsening, rocky slope, rather than about to suddenly hit a sheer cliff edge. But by most standards, the world's government are currently failing to avert a grim fate. Said Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the UN, we are on a catastrophic path. We can either save our world or condemn humanity to a hellish future. So they talk about a few of the different things we can expect, and they project it out. Heat waves is one of them. They talk about heat waves, floods, fires, crop failures. Well, heat waves, Earth's atmosphere, now saturated with emissions from human activity, is trapping warmth and leading to more frequent periods of extreme heat. Just in the last four months alone, there were heat waves in Oregon, Japan, Spain, Pakistan, all around the world. This year has provided bitter evidence that even current levels of warming are disastrous. With astounding floods in Germany and China, Hades like fires from Canada to California to Greece, and rain rather than snow falling for the very first recorded time ever at the summit of a rapidly melting Greenland ice sheet. Said Amanda Maycock, an expert in climate dynamics at the University of Leeds, no amount of global warming can be considered safe, and people are already dying from climate change. A heat dome that pulverized previous temperature records in the United States Pacific Northwest in June killed hundreds of people as well as a billion sea creatures who roasted alive in their shells off the coast would have been virtually impossible, scientists have calculated, if human activity hadn't heated the planet. While the German floods were made nine times more likely by the climate crisis, according to data. The fingerprint of climate change on recent extreme weather is quite clear, said Michael Wehner, who specializes in the climate at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. But he says, quote, even I am surprised by the number and scale of weather disasters in 2021. So the frequency and intensity of what used to be a once a decade event, depending on how hot we let it go, it's either going to be three times a decade, four times a decade, could be every single year. And after a COVID-induced blip last year, greenhouse gas emissions have roared back in 2021, further dampening slim hopes that the world will keep within the 1.5 degree limit. Said Jury Rogeli, a climate scientist at Imperial College in London, there's a high chance that we're going to get to 1.5 degrees within the next decade. Well, for humans, a comfortably livable planet starts to spiral away the more it heats up. At 1.5 degrees, about 15% of the world's people will be hit by severe heat waves every five years. Once we get to two degrees, that number is going to jump to more than a third of the human population experiencing that. Beyond 1.5 degrees for humans in the tropical regions of the world, heat will push those societies to the limits with stifling humidity, preventing sweat from evaporating and making it difficult for people to actually cool down. Extreme heat waves are expected to make parts of the Middle East 
too hot for humans to endure, scientists have found, with rising temperatures also posing enormous risks for people in China and India. A severe heat wave historically expected once a decade is now going to happen every other year if we get to 2 degrees Celsius, something our great-grandparents maybe experienced once in a lifetime will now become a regular event. In the next decade, heat waves could make the American South, Central America, Cuba, and coastal regions of Mexico much less livable. By the end of the century, the hottest regions of North America may be unlivable without major adaptations. In addition to heat waves, there's floods. Earth's hotter climate is causing the atmosphere to hold more water, then releasing the water in the form of extreme precipitation events. Just in the last two months, floods in India, France, Oman, Thailand. Some of the most dire impacts revolve around water in regards to the climate crisis, both the lack of it and inundation by it. Enormous floods, often fueled by abnormally heavy rainfall, have become a regular occurrence recently, not only in Germany and China, but also in the U.S., where the Mississippi River spent most of 2019 in a state of flood. And then there's Sudan, where flooding wiped out more than 110,000 homes last year. 110,000 homes wiped out by flooding in Sudan. Then there's wildfires. Of course, with the Earth's warming in the next decade, it's likely going to cause less rainfall in the northwest region of the U.S., as well as in some parts of the world like Central America and the Caribbean. Southern parts of the continent will likely experience periods of severe drought. But wildfires, because of Earth's hotter atmosphere soaking up all this water from the Earth, drying out trees and tinder, that amplifies the severity of wildfires. It's not just here in California. This year, there were wildfires in Australia, Indonesia, Morocco, U.S., all around the Mediterranean. And a disquieting unknown for climate scientists now are the ripple effects as the norms of weather continue to change. Record wildfires in California last year, for example, resulted in a million children missing a significant amount of time in school. What if permafrost melting or flooding cuts off critical roads used by supply chains? What if storms knock out the world's leading computer chip factory? What happens once half of the world is exposed to disease-carrying mosquitoes? Said, hey ho, the climate scientist, we've never seen the climate change this fast, so we really don't understand the nonlinear effects. There are tipping points in our human built systems that we don't think about enough. More carbon means worse impacts, which means more unpleasant surprises. Now, the American West has already experienced unprecedented wildfires, but that's only going to get worse and it's going to spread to Canada, Texas, and parts of Mexico. Then crop failure is also a concern. Guatemala, Australia, Zambia, Afghanistan, unpredictable weather like too much or too little rainfall decreases the quantity and quality of crop yields. So the issue is, of course, that every decision, every oil drilling lease, every acre of the Amazon rainforest is torched for being torched for livestock pasture, every new gas-guzzling SUV that rolls out onto the road will decide how far we tumble down the hill. Now in Glasgow, governments will be challenged to show they will fight every fraction of temperature rise or else, in the words of Greta Thunberg, this pivotal gathering is at risk of being dismissed as blah, blah, blah. 
Now, at the end of the article, the, uh, one of the scientists says, we've run down the clock, but it's never too late. 1.7 degrees is better than 1.9, which is better than 3. Cutting emissions tomorrow is better than the day after, because we can always avoid worse happening. The action is far too slow at the moment, but we can still act. Now, let's talk about some of that action, because unfortunately, it's not happening at the government level. Most of the governments are doing uh, what they can to extract as much oil and gas and maximize the economic recovery of such as fast as possible. Some are saying that uh, as our globe is burning, governments are sending in tanker trucks to spray oil and gasoline on the flames. It's true for even our government here. Joe Biden's green promises collided with business as usual while he pledged to ban new drilling and fracking on federal lands. So far, his administration in the first few months, has granted more than 2,000 new drilling permits. His national security advisor has actually demanded that OPEC increase their oil production and pull more fossil fuels out of the ground to burn just to reduce the cost of driving the monstrous cars that many Americans still buy. We were told that Biden's modest talk concealed an appetite for radical action, but Talk sets the boundaries of action, and those who promise low usually deliver lower on the political stage. So unless we leave fossil fuels in the ground as much as possible, any commitment to stop climate breakdown from politicians is merely gestural, and the atmosphere does not respond to gestures, according to George Monbiot in The Garden. It is unmoved by promises and unimpressed by words, and that's one of the reasons why governments hate and shun what climate science tells them to do. Because if they took it seriously, they would tailor political policy to scientific advice. But constraints on political action are perceived as intolerable. Commercial interests rule the day. So no government, even the most progressive, is yet prepared to contemplate the transformation we need. A global program that places the survival of humanity and the rest of life above all other issues. We need not just new policies, but new ethics. So when it comes to these new uh, government talks that you're going to hear a lot about, they've already basically failed before they've started, as the key players have acknowledged that they will not be able to fulfill even the aims of the Paris Agreement, according to the UN, the UK, and the US as well. They don't expect there to be any breakthroughs, and they've admitted that the original aim is going to be missed, as all of the pledges collected to date to try and keep it to two. Uh, instead, if they've add up all of the pledges from 200 countries around the planet, the governments are going to bring us to three degrees. That's as much as their promises can go. And unfortunately, there is no action even behind the promises. So we're supposed to keep it to 1.5. They said, let's let it go to two. And let's go ahead and make some promises that will actually instead let it go to three but our actions, uh, we won't, won't really do anything for the time being. So what's interesting is that uh, The Guardian it has a series of anonymous reports from developing countries within these talks and leading up to them. And um, that's something that I've been reading. It's called The Secret Negotiator. And behind the scenes, they're saying things like, so far, all the prep work we've done has just been beating around the bush. The homework has been done very well on the inconsequential parts, but on the issues that uh, are most important, not much is happening. 
Um, so it's something that's very fascinating to see the the American media not really play much of a role in sounding the alarm bells, um, but covering climate now, the national and international groups of news organizations uh, working together with the nation um, as well as with The Guardian are really doing some hard-hitting reports as well as talking about Facebook. And Facebook has announced new efforts to try and combat climate misinformation, although critics are saying it is falling short. Facebook's long been criticized for allowing misinformation about the climate crisis to proliferate on its platform with Mark Zuckerberg admitting in an April hearing this year in front of Congress that climate misinformation is a big issue. Past studies have revealed climate crisis denying posts and resources for climate crisis deniers is outpacing accurate information on the platform. One recent study found that 99% of climate misinformation about the February power outages in Texas went completely unchecked. The study found misleading reports that wind turbines were at fault in the outage and that those reports that were misleading and untrue had run rampant on Facebook's social media platform. But here's where it gets interesting. The study showed how such theories make their way from the fringes of Facebook immediately to the mainstream, finding that though the windmill claim in Texas during those outages was debunked on local and major news outlets, the falsehoods became talking points for prominent Republican politicians within four days of appearing on Facebook. Even though local and major news outlets debunked it, 99% of the misinformation on Facebook went unchecked. Within four days, federal national political figures were repeating those falsehoods. Um, so if you're looking for politicians to make efforts or social media or the media, uh, you might be disappointed. But we want to share with you some good things now. Here's where the motion is happening in the industry on individual levels and especially with the youth. We're going to quickly talk about computer chips and clothes and hopeful advancements in both, as well as raising awareness on our impacts as consumers and individuals before we close with a series of small bits on youth. So the computer chip industry, they have a dirty climate secret. They've got a problem. Demand is booming for silicon chips, which are embedded in everything from smartphones to TVs and wind turbines, but they come at a huge cost, a huge carbon footprint. The industry presents a paradox. Meeting global climate goals will, in part, rely on semiconductors. They're integral to electric vehicles, solar arrays, and wind turbines, but chip manufacturing also contributes to the climate crisis. It requires huge amounts of energy and water. A chip fabrication plant can use millions of gallons of water in a day, and it creates hazardous waste. The good news is, the largest, world's largest chip maker, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, which supplies chips to Apple, pledged to reach net zero emissions by 2050 and drive the industry towards low carbon sustainability. It's a challenge. TSMC by itself uses between 5 to 10% of Taiwan's entire electricity consumption. They're actually in a drought in Taiwan, so it's the worst drought in a half a century, which is pitting chip makers against farmers. And it's not just in Asia where these plants and pollution are happening. In the United States, at one single 
chip fabrication facility in Arizona. Intel has a 700-acre campus. In just the first three months of this year, just the first three months, Intel's fabrication facility in Arizona produced 30 million tons of waste in three months, about 60% of it hazardous. In that time period, it consumed almost a billion gallons of fresh water, enough to fill almost 1,500 Olympic swimming pools, and it used a half a billion kilowatt hours of energy. Now, when it comes to electronic devices, for example, if you've got a home stereo system or a TV, you might wonder about the carbon footprint and is it because of the energy it uses? Is it because of the the hardware and the building and construction of it? No, it turns out chip manufacturing rather than energy consumption or hardware use accounts for most of the carbon footprint for electronics devices, according to Harvard researchers. So, What's been happening now is they're doing everything they can to switch to being renewable energy powered. TSMC um, has made a commitment to get all of their energy from 100% renewable as well as Intel. They're also doing everything they can to make everything more efficient when they regulate air and water temperature, humidity, pressure. Um, They're capturing more data and using alternative intelligence in order to shift what they're doing And the biggest issue is trying to actually change these fabrication lines and use more climate-friendly materials and gases. But it's very difficult because here's the deal. Chip makers have to place up to 100 million transistors on a postage stamp-sized wafer. 100 million transistors on a postage stamp, and they have to do it perfectly. And it can take four to five years for these plants to develop a recipe for this and do it consistently. Consistently, Once you get it set, you really don't want to change it. It's a big challenge for all of the industry on the globe right now in order to switch what we're doing because they're built to do something else. The status quo is meant to stay in place. It's not that easy to just up and change things. But let's talk about clothing. There is a new company called Allbirds, a footwear and clothing company, and their message is your outfit is killing the planet, and they are now putting labels on the climate impact of clothing. Figures are debated, but about 10% of annual global emissions originate from the fashion industry, and Allbirds is working to raise consumer awareness. Um, They have actually started an apparel line with a fiber made from discarded snow crab shells, They worked with Adidas to create a a running shoe based on 63% fewer emissions. They've used renewable fabrics, biodegradable wool. They went on to make shoes out of tree fibers such as eucalyptus with recycled bottles for shoelaces and castor beans for insoles. So Allbirds is part of, again, just like TSMC, they're an industry leader now pulling the fashion industry along and they're encouraging there be put uh, labels on clothing so you can see the carbon footprint when you make your purchase. All right, now let's close out with some focus on the youth. That's where the hope is for the future, and that's where our focus is lying for a lot of adults today on uh, our concern and care. Well, new research shows that, as you might expect, children born today are going to experience a lot more climate crises than their grandparents We've also heard a lot of the youth movements uh, behind Greta Thunberg and the climate strikes. But some of the great new news is Gen Z members that are flocking to climate careers in droves. 
According to uh, some of the people, there's a 23-year-old sustainability consultant based in Boston, Rachel Lavery, who says, once you learn how damaged the world's ecosystems are, it's not really something you can unsee. To me, there's no point in pursuing a career in any other area. Well, she's one of countless members of Gen Z, people under 25, who are responding to the planet's rapidly changing climate by committing their lives to finding a solution. But survey after survey shows young people are not just changing their day-to-day behaviors, they're in it for the long haul. Colleges say surging numbers of students are pursuing environmental-related degrees and careers that were once considered irresponsible, didn't have a future income, and they needed to find more stable paths like business, medicine, or law. However, now, as corporations are realizing that they're going to stop making money if we lose the planet, that funding is suddenly showing up. Another young person was quoted saying, we grow up being told that working in environmental fields is a dream that's not accomplishable and there's no money in it. But as we start to realize that the world we live in isn't sustainable, that funding is finally here. Well, that's all for today's Climate Report, broadcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For more news and views in between broadcasts and post-show links to today's news, look for the Climate Report page on Facebook. Feel free to also email climatereport at kvmr.org.